Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I need about 90 minutes of your time. If you will give me that, I'll give you my broadcast partners across the world. And I literally mean across the world. We're going to talk with Ken Timmerman in a moment. He's in Spain. Winky Madad will report in from Israel. And uh, we will talk with those who have been around the world recently. John Rood was in Norway last week. He's back home. He'll have his European Union update. And then Steve Herzig, who just returned from Israel, he's going to give us a report on the Jewish Holy Day Purim. That's all ahead. That's why I need 90 minutes. I'm so thrilled that we can have this opportunity to interact with you and our broadcast partners about current events unfolding in this world that may well be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. In fact, let's go to Ken in Spain. You know, interestingly, Ken travels into Europe quite often. Many times we catch him in France, but then he travels all over the European Union. He's in Spain. Hey, Ken, I heard you had a little bit of fun this afternoon skiing. Was it good skiing there in Spain? Oh, yes. We were skiing in the Spanish Pyrenees. It was wonderful. Fresh snow, and uh, thank you for asking. Well, I'm hoping that you're going to get some R&R there. You need that, buddy, as much as you travel and as much as you're working. Well, let's get to the geopolitical events I want to talk to you about. Russia says that the rebel positions in Syria and Idlib, that would be the northwestern corner of the state of Syria, which is still the very fractious location where the Syrians and under Bashar Assad endeavoring to send his military in and take that section of Syria back as well. The Russians, the Turks, the Kurds, and the Syrians having some problems. What do we know? Well, Erdogan went to Moscow on Thursday in a face-saving move. Putin told him, essentially, we're so sorry that 33 of your soldiers were killed in the recent Syrian government attack against the terrorists. We did not know that your people were there, (laughs) side-by-side, with the jihadi terrorists (laughs) that the Syrian government was attacking. It was a, uh, you know... This is this is the real world. Thirty-three people are dead. Syrians launched airstrikes. These are very serious things. But there's a there's there's almost a comic side to this, Jimmy. The Turks positioning their military forces side by side with jihadi terrorists they claim to be opposing, and then the Russians helping the Syrian to attack the jihadi terrorists. And oops, we just got thirty-three Turkish soldiers as well. Erdogan went to Moscow to uh, try to get Moscow support for his incursion into Idlib. He did not. He just got this backhanded apology from Putin, who basically said, you shouldn't be positioning your troops side by side with jihadi terrorists that we, the Syrians, the United States, the Western world, all want to get rid of. Well, a very diplomatic move by Vladimir Putin. He's known to be able to dress somebody down and they would pat him on the back. Thank you so very much. It seems that's exactly what happens. Really, Erdogan, and we've talked about this much before, uh, the fact is he wants to be the pan-Islamic leader of the world, and this is where he's probably trying to go in and take out those Kurds there in Syria. And the president of Russia, Putin, said, hey, I'll help you out. I'll keep you from being so embarrassed in this world. That's right. And remember also that Turkey still 
is a member of NATO. We might not think that Turkey is a very good ally in NATO, and I happen to take that position, but they are still a member of NATO, and NATO itself is divided over how to deal with Turkey and their threats to the European Union. So Putin is playing a uh, you know three-ball billiard here. He's bouncing <laughs> his balls off the different walls of the billiard table. Uh, on the one hand, he's trying to keep the Turks from invading Syria further and with greater force than they have already. He's also trying to drive a wedge between Turkey and NATO. That's always something that the Russians like to do. And at the same time, he's trying to sell weapons to Erdogan. Remember just last year, he sold the S-400 air defense missiles to Turkey, and that caused a big, big problem with NATO. So this is kind of a complex backdrop, if you wish, to this meeting in Moscow in Thursday. NATO is talking about it as well. You have disputes, as I mentioned, inside NATO between the Germans, between Stoltenberg, who's the chairman of NATO, uh, the French, because Turkey is threatening to inundate Europe with another wave of possibly millions more of Muslim migrants. So all of this is happening at the same time, and Putin is the one who's really sitting there like the Cheshire cat, enjoying the show. You know, Ken, I've heard people talk about geopolitical activities as playing a game of chess. Never heard the illustration that it's a pool game that's going on. You're an excellent wordsmith. I can't believe you sometimes. Well, let's talk about Iran. Uh, their state terror general, who is the man who is the now new commander, Salami, of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, is saying that the Chinese coronavirus is actually biological warfare. What do we know about this? It's a bizarre statement. Uh, it's a very bizarre statement, especially because Iran desperately needs China as an ally. They need China to continue to buy Iranian oil on the black market, and they need Chinese technology. So for General Salami, who is the new head of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, to call coronavirus a biological weapon when everybody knows that it's come from China is something, I think, very strange and very bizarre. And it shows that this virus has really hit the Iranian regime much harder than people realize. You know, the reports this week, 26 members of the parliament mm. of the Majlis have been stricken with the disease. We don't know if any of them are dead yet, because the Iranians are a bit late in uh, telling us that. The deputy health minister was on uh, national television earlier this week saying they had everything under control, and he was coughing on the program, and the next day he was diagnosed with coronavirus. Yes. Uh, you have a top aide to the Ayatollah, a guy named Mir Mohammadi, who died this past week from the coronavirus. It is far more lethal in Iran than any place else yeah. in the world. The lethality rate is something like 15% of the declared number of cases, whereas in China it's around 2 to 3%. So what we don't know is that it would appear that there are many, many more cases of coronavirus in Iran, and it's got even senior people like General Salami very worried. Yes, and in fact, uh, we're looking at a game changer here possibly as, as concerning Iran. Well, let's don't leave Iran yet. They are saying that the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, the case that they have for inspecting sites in Iran to see where they are in their development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction is actually based on fake 
Israeli intelligence. Very interesting how Israel is playing a part giving the IAEA this information. Do you think it would be false or fake Israeli intelligence, or are they just, what are they doing here? Well, uh, look, the Israelis have the best intelligence on Iran and Iran's nuclear weapons program. They have shown that publicly over and over again. Netanyahu has gone to the United Nations and revealed uh, secret information of, about Iran's nuclear weapons intentions that nobody else has had and has certainly turned out to be true. He's also had two press conferences in Tel Aviv over the past year and a half where he revealed twice that Israel had penetrated secret locations in Iran and exfiltrated tons of secret documents relating to Iran's nuclear weapons program. So some of this information the Israelis have turned over to the International Atomic Energy Agency, their documents. They have internal reports from Iranian agencies testing nuclear weapons components revealing sites that have not been inspected before, and that's what the issue is right now. Uh, based on this Israeli intelligence, which, again, it's, it's not something that the Israelis have created, it's information that they stole, <laughs> yeah. that they stole right. from the Iranians. So these are Iranian government reports stolen by the Israelis that Israel then gave to the IAEA. The IAEA tried to corroborate with its own sources, and now they are using those Iranian government reports talk about new sites to go investigate those new sites in Iran. And the Iranians are saying, no, 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 you can't do it because it's based on fake Israeli intelligence. They're not going to win this one. Uh, the IAEA will win this one. But uh, it, again, shows that the Iranians are very worried. Yes, it does. And not fake Israeli intelligence, but as you say, stolen Israeli intelligence. Well, Ken, there's a conflict going on in Libya. I'm not sure exactly what is happening, but I do understand that the eastern government of Libya has opened up a embassy for Syria, for Damascus, and they are pledging a united fight against Turkey. Talk to me about that quickly. Well, what we have is uh, General Haftar, the leader in Benghazi, who is actually pro-Western, but we have rejected him. So he's turned to Moscow and he's turned to Syria for help uh, against a European Union-supported government, a government supported by Turkey as well, in Tripoli. So Haftar's people have now opened up an embassy in Damascus, Syria, with international representation, and they're saying to the Syrians, look, we have a common enemy, it's Turkey. Turkey is supporting Islamists in Syria. Turkey is supporting Islamists in Libya. So let us work together against Turkey and its support for Islamic jihadi groups. Very interesting information developing geopolitical activities, helping us to better focus in on the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. And the man who covers all of these geopolitical activities for us, Ken Timmerman, he's a well-traveled individual, a journalist, a author, and we've got so many other things we could say about him, but we're so thankful to have him available for us. Ken, thank you so much. Enjoy a little bit of R&R for your time of skiing there in Spain. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. I, you know, I'm with my oldest son. He's now 41 years old, and I taught him to ski when he was a pup. And it's such a great thing to see how good a skier he's become. Wow, <laughs> that is fun. Great to be with family. We're going to take okay. a break right now when we come back. We're going to be talking with David Dolan. He has a Middle East news update for us. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today. 
How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're here at Broadcast Central, and we are so excited you could join us today. We have information coming from our broadcast partners, just talking to Ken Timmerman there in Spain. Uh, We're going to be talking to Winky Madad after I conclude my conversation with David Dolan. He's going to give us an update on the Israeli elections. But right now, as I said, David Dolan gives us our Middle East news update, which is essential for each and every one of us who are students of Bible prophecy to pay close attention to. These elections looks like same old, same old, David. It doesn't look like they're going to be able to form a coalition government unless they ban the prime minister from even being able to form a government. What do we know? Well, yes, it was a better outcome for the Likud than the previous two elections, but still three seats short of forming a majority government. Although, Jimmy, with the 58 seats in the right-wing bloc, as it's called, that's four different parties, the Likud heading that, they're hoping they can maybe persuade two or three members of the Israel Beitenu party, that's Avigdor Lieberman's a mostly Russian-based party, Russian-Israelis, voting for it. That's a right-wing party. Most of the voters are known to be on the right as well. And some of the Knesset members that have just been elected to the new list of the Israel Beitenu may be persuaded to jump over and help. But as you say, there's a bill in the Knesset to prevent a sitting prime minister who is indicted from serving as prime minister. He cannot be in that seat. And if that passes, and it's questionable, but Lieberman is backing it, and 
if all of his party members back it, that could be passed, in which case, yes, that would ban Netanyahu from uh, forming a government, and another Likud member could do so, but it's a mess, and uh, the only hope is now that, uh, I talked about it earlier, a national unity government could be formed with the coronavirus spreading in Israel, over 20 cases, and uh, almost 100,000 people quarantined, and it's spread into the PA zones as well. There may be an emergency government set up. That's what we were looking at earlier this year due to the situation with Iran, but it may just be that the health situation in Israel is such that that causes a, at least a temporary unity government of some sort to to be formed, but that remains to be seen. But it's a bit of a muddle, a bit of a mess. And uh, we were talking about, uh, before we went on the air with David during the break, the situation as it relates to the coronavirus there. They have shut down the little community of Bethlehem, which uh, is made up of the Palestinian people. And uh, the defense minister, Naftali Bennett, has shut that down, so they're under quarantine there as well. Well, let me get to some other subjects we want to talk about. The Hamas leader has gone to Russia to meet with Russia's foreign minister to thank him, actually, for being critical of the U.S. peace plan. Now, Hamas has had a relationship with Russia in the past. Looks like they're trying to continue to develop that relationship. Well, yes, and uh, we talked about Vladimir Putin and his drive to make Russia a great Middle Eastern power again, as it once was under the Soviet Union, with allies in Syria and Egypt and other places. And uh, they've been building their ties with the Saudis and with uh, others in the area, with Egypt again, and uh, with the Palestinians. And, uh, yes, they are very much opposed to President Trump, and they hate the peace plan, basically. They don't want to see any annexations or anything like that. So they're cozying, the Palestinians are, back up to the Russians, but not just the radical groups, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, but uh, the PA, as we discussed, I think, a few weeks ago, is itself asking uh, that Russia get involved in trying to make peace and taking a more active role in the area. So this is definitely the trend. And, of course, we know scripturally that uh, Russia will be a major player in the end days in the region, and so it's uh, developing. Well, you know, I was just going to ask you about that. You brought up the fact that Russia, that would be Magog, found there in Ezekiel 38, is going to be the leader of the coalition of Islamic states trying to destroy the state of Israel. Meanwhile, the Palestinians will be a part of that plan, want uh, Vladimir Putin to lead the peace process. That's ironic. They're going to be the leader to destroy Israel. How in the world could Vladimir Putin play a role as a peacemaker? Well, yes, it is ironic to say the least, but all of the pieces, though, of that alliance are not in place. Russia and Turkey are currently at odds with each other, to say the least. In fact, they may uh, have a full war developing in northern Syria between the two of them. Turkey, as you know, is also listed as being a part of that end-time coalition. So things are not yet there, but we do see the trends. And, uh, you know, whereas 10 years ago, Russia was basically out of the region and its influence had, had waned considerably. It had more or less closed down its uh, naval base in Syria and its air base there. 
near the coast, and now they're all back and thriving, and they're taking over more land and setting up more bases. And as we know, they even took over some of the evacuated U.S. bases in northern Syria a few months ago. So uh, they're back on a roll, and it's going to continue, I'm sure. That's why we have David Dolan on this broadcast to help us understand these geopolitical activities, political activities setting the stage for prophetic events to unfold. David, talk to me about Jordan. The prime minister over there says the peace treaty with Israel is in danger due to Israel's unilateral measures that they're taking. I guess that relates to the Temple Mount. What do we know? Yeah, they're mainly talking about the Temple Mount and the Prime Minister's declared intention to annex as much of Judea and Samaria as he can, basically, as he can get away with. But they're very unhappy with anything like that. They don't want to see the Israelis annex the Jordan Valley, especially the Temple Mount is at the heart of it. They've been the custodians of that for the Muslims for many years now and don't want to lose that role. So that's their main concern with this peace plan. I heard that uh, the IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency, has some materials they received from the Israeli intelligence community. And actually, these were materials that uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, had given to the world there at the United Nations and in special briefings there in Jerusalem about how Iran is involved in the development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. But now Iran is saying uh, that uh, their case for trying to inspect them as it relates to what's going on from a nuclear perspective there in Iran comes from Israeli fake intelligence. I mean, Israel has the greatest intelligence community in the world, would you not say, David? Well, they definitely do, although it's hard to operate in an enemy country like Iran, but they do have uh, agents in there. And as we know, they actually <laughs> were able to get their hands on a lot of the files of the nuclear program and take that to the U.N. and show the nations of the world what's really going on there. It's not fake. They're not making it up. The Iranians are clearly, well, they've said so. They're increasing their centrifuge use. They're breaking out, as it were, so that it would take just a few months now for them to put together a nuclear warhead. So it's a very, very serious situation. And again, we may see Israeli preemptive strike on Iran to stop that. But at the moment, the Israelis are preoccupied with the disease and Iran, of course. The cases doubled in just one day there this week. So both countries are sort of internally preoccupied at the moment, but the conflict between them is not going to go away because the Iranians are not going to let it go away. This next coming week, there's a special Jewish holy day. It's not part of the Leviticus 23 group of seven feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, and then in the spring they have a Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles, but it's Purim, and it comes from the book of Esther. going to have Steve Herzig explain Purim, but uh, that would mean that Israel is going to have to be on pretty high security if there are going to be many Jews who will make their pilgrimage into Jerusalem to celebrate Purim, correct? Well, basically, the government's telling everybody to stay home, Jimmy, and not just not to travel abroad, but to stay in their homes. And most Purim events have been canceled. Most gatherings have been canceled. 
Uh, they're just not encouraging anything like that. Now, private parties and small, smaller things will continue, I'm sure. And uh, Jews will go and pray in the synagogue, I'm sure. You don't want to stop praying at a time like this. But it's going to be a different holiday, and they're even more concerned, of course, because Passover and Easter are coming up next month, and they're really concerned about how the flight bans from Europe and now El Al's canceled its flight to San Francisco and to many other places around the world. So there's not many people coming in, but they're concerned about how this will affect the economy of Israel. It's already having quite a severe impact. Very interesting developments in our world. And if you look at the prophetic scenario found in God's Word, I do not see how the rapture is not going to take place pretty quickly. But we continue to report these current events going to regions like the Middle East with David Dolan to get all the latest information. David, thank you so much for the report. Stay safe where you are, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad standing by. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. So glad to have you along for 90 minutes. This is information you'll receive during this 90 minutes that will help you look at the world and see what is going on, understanding better how that prophetic scenario written by the ancient Jewish prophets seemingly is coming better into focus each and every morning. In fact, I woke up this morning having a little time of prayer. I said, Lord, this looks like the time your prophets wrote about, is it? Let's get it on. Anyway, you are so glad, I'm sure, to be able to hear some of the reports that we're going to have from our broadcast partners, helping then better for each and every one of us to understand where we are in God's time for today. Winky Madad, we promised he'd be along, and we're going to have a conversation here. Now, I am not absolutely sure how much he knows because of the fact that it's seemingly in a changing mode almost daily, and in fact, even hourly. It was the historic third election for the state of Israel this last week. And in fact, we don't know exactly how it's going to go. Seems like more of the same. Winky, as we're on the air right now talking, what do you know about the results from this recent election and what's going to happen in the future? Well, Jimmy, uh, as far as I can read the results and understand the political divisions, 
We have not yet reached that magic number of 61, not even 60. Mr. Netanyahu pulled out a tremendous campaign victory for himself and pulled it up to 36 seats for his Likud party, whereas his competitors, the Blue and White Party, came up three less. So that was a resounding defeat of uh, the party. And, Jimmy, I must remind you and our listeners, that party really doesn't have much of a platform except we don't want Bibi. They've been very weak on uh, social, economic, and military security issues. It's not that they haven't said anything, but uh, they obviously, to everybody else, it's, it's, it's just not Bibi is their line. And the Arab party has improved itself to 15. They, they're called the joint list. And again, our Russian friend, Mr. Avigdor Lieberman, has managed to hold on to seven seats. And again, he becomes what we call in Hebrew the edge of the scales. He's the one who can award this way or that way. Actually, he can't. Now that I'm talking to you, even with his seven seats, the best they can do is block Mr. Netanyahu. He can join Netanyahu and give him a government, but he doesn't like Netanyahu. So I have to say that we're called into another daring precipice of political pandemonium. Wow, I like that alliteration. Yeah, I love that. But it's exactly describing where the state of Israel is today politically. Never a dull moment in Israel when it comes to politics. Now, as I understand, Netanyahu has 59 of the 61 required votes. Uh, 61 would be a simple majority of the entire 120 members of the Knesset. And in order to have the Knesset vote for him to be prime minister, he needs about two more. And any more than that would be even great for him in setting up this government. What is wrong with Avigdor Lieberman? I know there's some bad blood between he and Netanyahu, but he is also making the statement. He does not want to sit on any government that has the religious parties included in it. What's wrong with that? Well, what his point is, is that you have to realize that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 Russian immigrants who, according to Jewish ritual law, the, the religious law, what we call in Hebrew halakha, are not Jewish. And because the law of return recognizes grandparents, in other words, you don't have to have Jewish parents. If your grandfather or grandmother was Jewish, that's enough. And that irks the more ultra-Orthodox religious bodies. And he also insists that they've completely fulfilled their obligations of military service of or national service. And they're not very happy with that. And so he's been stirring up the pot. In fact, one or two of his videos, I'd hate to say this, but you and I are friends, are borderline anti-Semitic mm. imagery that is being used. Mm. And so it got them very riled, and it really reduced the ability of the two of them to sit together, as they had in the past. I think I've mentioned this. He and Derry, who was with the Oriental Jews uh, party, Shas, have been very good friends. But with the other parties, it's very difficult now. And in fact, today Likud sort of released a, a, a press release saying that um, Mr. Lieberman should be investigated 
for embezzlement crimes due to new evidence, which is really going to, shall we say, have both of them out of favor uh, for a long time. Well, I've heard the possibility might come about that uh, some of those seven members of the Knesset in the uh, Vigdor Lieberman Russian-speaking party uh, may jump ship with him and come on board with Netanyahu, which if he just had two of them do that, that would give him that simple majority. Or there are some possibilities I hear as well over there in the Blue-White Party that some of the conservative members of that party, uh, they may jump ship as well. What about that? Is that a possibility? The possibility exists. At the present moment, it's very low. I have to be honest with you. But next week, uh, Jimmy, uh, President uh, Rivlin calls in the parties for consultations. And then that's where the pressure is really going to uh, be applied, because going to elections for a fourth time is really uh, not on the books. But, um, I, you know, as we say in Israel, never say never. So uh, Rivlin, actually the first time this happened, he said, why don't you guys have some sort of an agreement that one runs the government for two years and the other one becomes prime minister for the next two years? So Gan said, I go first. And then the, his rest of his partners said, we won't serve under a Netanyahu premiership. Well, that was proven wrong in this last election. Everybody knew exactly Netanyahu's legal problems and charges and the fact that he has to go to court at least on March 17th, etc. And they still gave him a resounding uh, uplift, in fact. So, obviously, the people said, until the guy is proven guilty in court, we don't care. We want him. But the parties are saying, no, we don't like him. And that, therefore, as Netanyahu was trying to portray it, you're betraying the popular confidence that most of the people voted for the bloc that wants Netanyahu at his head. Yeah. What about uh, the fact, uh, be bottom line with me, Winky, do you think that Netanyahu, he's known as the magician, and he can almost perform any kind of a magic trick to make it happen? Do you think that's going to be a, a possibility for him to pull it out, or is there any other way they could go except for the fact that everybody doesn't want to go to a fourth election? Well, Jimmy, we're a program that also has at its base biblical prophecy. <laughs> he doesn't do miracles, but as you say, he does do a lot of other things that are amazing. But he's stuck uh, because his maneuverability is, is, is problematic. And if there is enough pressure, what you said will be correct. There will be people breaking off from other parties. As I speak to you now, that's been uh, raised two or three, I think even more, members of Knesset, who are suspected of being uh, jumpers, shall we say, from one party to another, have said outright, no, that's, that's not going to happen. But again, it's a matter of public pressure or presidential pressure or the fact that people are saying that enough is enough, you guys have to get together. We know one thing for sure, though. God has a plan, and that will be worked out among his people, the Jewish people. Will that not be the case, Winky? I can't wait to see it, Jimmy, because it'll probably be mind-boggling. Uh, it is going to be, and you'll be there to report it for us. We so appreciate the opportunity being able to talk to you, Winky. Thank you so much. We may have to have a conversation next week to see where it's going. Jimmy, first of all, everybody should be healthy with this uh, coronavirus going on. Thank you again for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners. 
Very interesting conversation with Winky Madad. Again, we're a bit confused. Uh, the political atmosphere there in Israel changing almost by the hour. And uh, that's the latest that we were able to get from Winky. We'll stay on top of the story because it is key uh, that a Israeli government, a coalition government, be formed. We'll go back to Winky when we have additional information that we can pass along to you. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union for us. You might remember last week we did not get a European Union report, an update, as much as just the fact we touched base with John while he was in Norway. He was there to spend some time with business leaders, giving them some counsel on maybe some decisions they're going to have to make. And, John, I thought what we might do this time as we have conversation with you about a update on the European Union. Uh, talk to us uh, just briefly, maybe a couple of articles I want to talk to you about. And as you traveled in Europe first time and maybe a little bit, what are your observations? For example, what about the coronavirus? Are they concerned? And the European Union and Iran. Just give us some thoughts, if you will, about your trip to the European Union. Yes, indeed. Uh, the coronavirus situation is the most uh, evident thing happening at the moment. The masks and so forth are pretty prevalent uh, just about anywhere you go. People are pretty concerned if someone on the plane is coughing, etc. This is going to continue and to accelerate. Iran is continuing to play its cards as expected and often use very intimidating fashion in its communications with the EU and what has happened here is Turkey is in this very pivotal position, being the border state, so to speak, between the Middle East and the European Union. And uh, we see Turkey as well taking some of the similar approaches to things as Iran has done in the past. And then as well, Iran and Turkey are facing an opposition between themselves as well. And so as we know, the region has many reasons to be heating up. Yes, it surely does, ratcheting up the tension there. Speaking of Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan has threatened the European Union with about a million migrants. They're there at the Turkish-Greek border, and there's some problems going on there. They say they're going to open the gates and allow about a million migrants. There's about three million there in Turkey, and they've just been holding them, I think, for such a time as this. What was the word on that? Well, uh, this refers to the, the past comment as well, that Turkey is doing similar actions as in the past, which the European Union is perceiving to be a form of blackmail. Uh, it was 2016 the EU cut a major deal with Turkey, dealing with uh, almost one million refugees that had arrived in the European Union in 2015. And so Turkey this time is doing the exact same thing, as you said, 3.7 million Syrian refugees are in Turkey, and so they're using the Syrian refugees to leverage the European Union to have a response. In 2016, uh, the deal was cut with the European Union, and it was a sum of 6 billion euros that the European Union paid to Turkey to uh, stop this flow of immigration and to take care of, of the refugees. But indeed, what's happening now is perceived as a blackmail situation. 
they're saying they're ready to unleash millions of refugees into the Southeast European Union, which would be towards Greece, and said that already hundreds of thousands have crossed the border. Soon it's going to be millions. But Greece itself has said that there's only about a 1,000 migrants that have come through. So things are some exaggeration there. But then at the same time, the Council of Europe that deals with the human rights in Europe, it's condemned both Turkey and Greece on both sides of this issue for the treatment of the people. I can basically understand why the Greeks are really very much upset about this. They're going to be the focus point of these immigrants, maybe up to 3 million, 3.7 million, as you gave us the correct number. Uh, That's a real problem. However, we were talking about NATO a moment ago. They're actually, NATO is telling the European Union, amid this uh, crisis, to go ahead and follow along and work with Turkey. Exactly. Turkey has that positioning geographically and somewhat politically to deal with the Middle East. And, of course, this is uh, the epicenter here is Syria. NATO has its decisions that have to be made unanimously, 29 member states. But Secretary General of NATO Stoltenberg has come out and said we really have to cooperate with Turkey, you know, this is our important ally there, whether we like it or not, uh, we have to deal with them as their positioning, as we've already said. Turkey has taken advantage of the situation and come up with what we can perceive as this blackmail situation. But also remember that a lot of these tensions started between Turkey and NATO. It was the French foreign minister that came out and said, you know, we need to have a real heart-to-heart talk to determine if Turkey is really going to be with us or against us. Turkey took a strong stand when they bought the Russian missile defense, which is unfathomable for a NATO country uh, to do such a thing. And now we find that Turkey is finding itself on the combat field with Russian-backed forces in Syria as well as Iran. So they're in a bit of a fix, and I think they're going to use this distraction uh, technique and uh, try again to do the pressure on the European Union by releasing uh, refugees. But the European Union appears to be a bit wiser this time and won't uh, succumb to all of the wishes. Folks, the scenario that you've just heard John Rood lay out for us is basically a prophetic scenario. We're talking about the political, which is, of course, setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. That's why we go to John to have this weekly report on the European Union. Great report, John. Thank you so much. Glad you're back safe. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much. Well, John Rood, back from his trip to Europe, back in the saddle here in the United States, and a great report on the European Union update. We have to stay on top of that region of the world because they play a key role in the end-time prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible as it relates to the revival of the old Roman Empire. John Rood, our broadcast partner, covering that region of the world. Okay, I know it. It's upcoming. Purim is just about less than a week away. We're going to have an opportunity to talk with the man when any time we have a conversation about the Jewish feast, 
We bring Steve Herzig, who's the National Director of Friends of Israel, a good friend of us here on Prophecy Today, to the broadcast table to help explain this particular holy day. Now, we're talking about Purim, which comes up, I think it's next Tuesday. And I want to remind everybody, this is not one of the seven feasts found in Leviticus chapter 23, which would be Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits, Pentecost, and then in the fall you would have Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Feast of Tabernacles. But this is a different feast, and we'll ask Steve why that is the case. But Purim, uh, as recorded in the book of Esther, is a very special holy day for the Jewish people. And you know that book of Esther, Steve, is very, very unique in the fact that well, there are a lot of unique things about it. Share from a Jewish background perspective what's unique about Esther. Well, hello, Jimmy. It's great to be here. Yeah, the forum is coming upon us, and I'm ex- always excited about any feast, and so many Jewish feasts have food involved, and we'll probably talk a little <laughs> bit about that in a moment. But uh, the unique part of the book of Esther, and one to me that actually makes it very powerful, is the fact that God's name is not mentioned even once in the book, nor is it ever mentioned, that is, the book, in the New Testament. Yet I would submit to you that it's a very important book because it speaks of the providence of God. I would tell you, Jimmy, that uh, the book of Esther is one that depicts what I call a one-minute-to-midnight moment Mm. for the particular person. You, You might remember, Jimmy, when... Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. That was a one-minute-to-midnight moment. Or when David stood before Goliath as a ruddy boy against a giant, that was a one-minute-to-midnight moment. And when Daniel was tested to see if he would pray the way he always did towards Jerusalem when the law said no, that was a one-minute-to-midnight moment. And in this book, we have Esther, who is a cousin, or actually a niece, to Mordecai, and Haman says there's a certain people to King Ahasuerus, they are, they are unique, and we got to get rid of them because they're no good for you. What was Esther going to do? That was a one-minute-to-midnight moment, and Purim is really a celebration of the saving, I believe, the unique saving of God, even though his name wasn't even mentioned. It's a marvelous story, Jimmy. It is a lovely story. I just love to teach and preach from that particular book, but even when I'm not doing that, I just love to read through it and watch God's hand, though he's not mentioned, taking care of every single thing that needs to be done as it relates to the Jewish people. Okay, we've got King Ahasuerus. He's one of the characters, and then the villain would be Haman, and then Esther. Now, what's unique about her is she was a Jewess, and she was married to a Gentile, which was not normally the case, right? That is exactly correct. The Bible is such an honest book. You have a period of time in which the Jewish people who were scattered had an opportunity to go back to the land, but a little less than 50,000 people go back to the land after the decree that's given by Cyrus to do so. And most of them stay, Jimmy, because, quite frankly, business was good where they are. There was, they were comfortable. The idea of going back to the land wasn't something that appealed to the Jewish people. And so 
even though we have a story here that depicts a stand, I would submit a stand for God, we have a people, my people, who were disobedient to God in the context of which this story was written. A very honest appraisal of a book that really helps you and me, Jimmy, I think, because you got to be transparent with God, and God is transparent with us. Yes, he reveals all the warts, <laughs> even if they're in the places you don't like to have a wart, it is there, and the Lord brings it out. And that's what's going on there in the book of Esther. Well, Haman puts a plan together. He gets King Ahasuerus to write the law of the Medes and the Persians to kill all the Jews because he got upset when Mordecai wouldn't bow at the gate to the city, would not bow down to him. And the law was written, but then Esther realized, hey, maybe I'm here for such a time as this. If I perish, I perish. That is so beautiful, isn't it? It's an incredible thing. And, Jimmy, I think the book of Esther has a great deal of humor because there's two banquets that are going to take place in Chapter 5, and Esther is going to reveal, uh, as she's thinking, she's going to reveal her fact that she's Jewish to the king. She doesn't do it the first time. She doesn't do it the second time. And in Chapter 6, she has already had dinner with Haman, her, and the king. Uh And it says in Chapter 6 and Verse 1, On that night could not the king sleep. And, Jimmy, I wonder if he couldn't sleep because he needed Pepto-Bismol. He already had these two banquets, and I wonder if that's why. But regardless of why, he couldn't sleep. He asked for the Chronicles to be brought to him. They just happened to turn to a passage which says that Mordecai saved him when a plot was given to him. And as a result of that, that was brownie points for Mordecai. And ultimately, Esther reveals herself. Haman ends up being in big trouble, and exactly what Mor- what Haman intended for Mordecai and all the Jews, that is, to be killed, in fact, they ended up being saved. It's yeah. an amazing story. Yeah, those gallows that uh, Haman had prepared for Mordecai, he ended up being hanged on those gallows itself. Well, it is a wonderful story, some great spiritual principles, maybe we You and I, dear friends, listening in on this conversation, we may well be here for such a time as this, and we must go forth to do what God has called us to do. Well, we mentioned it's a feast time, and it's similar a little bit to Halloween for the children. They dress up in the different costumes for the different characters, but talk about that food that you were telling us about. That makes me sound like I'm going to go get something to eat here. (laughs) Well, you know, the pastry that's number one in Israel and amongst Jewish people in North America is hamantashen. It reminds the Jewish people of Haman's hat, and it's a pastry that's folded into a triangle. It's filled with various kinds of of filling, uh, all different kinds that, uh, that people like, fruit fillings and things like that. The foods of the Jewish people, especially for their holidays, are all foods designed to remember. And remembering is always a big deal with God, and it's a big deal with the Jewish people. Identifying with our ancestors and what they went through is a constant reminder to us. And, Jimmy, just getting back from Israel myself uh, and realizing uh, that Purim is a time where, you're right, all the kids dress up, but it helps them remember and I think it's good for us, too, Jimmy, because if Quorum didn't happen, in other words, if Haman was successful, you and I know very well the Lord Jesus would have never been born. 
because Haman would have succeeded, wiped out all the Jews, and the seed that God promised back in Genesis chapter 3 would not have been born. So this particular feast day or holiday for the Jewish people, though God's name wasn't mentioned, his name was at stake. And you and I know there's victory. Oh, wow. Yes, sir. Great victory. We have been able to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I remember the very first conversation you and I had about Purim. You brought that to my attention. It just hit me right in the face. You know, some facts you you really in the background should know, but then all of a sudden you realize, hey, boy, that is true. That's great. No Esther, no Jesus Christ. Well, speaking of Jesus Christ, Give us a quick hint as to how we would use this particular Jewish holy day to endeavor to try to introduce the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to our Jewish friends. Well, just recognizing that this is a day that Jewish people celebrate it, certainly uh, just wishing them a a wonderful forum is good. If they have opportunity, wherever your listeners are, if they could purchase uh, some hamantaschen from a deli or a a special place in a grocery store if there's a larger Jewish population, and just taking them over to your Jewish friend or Jewish co-worker and acknowledging that forms taking place is going to put a smile on their face and an acknowledgement of, hey, wait, you're not even Jewish. How did you know about this? It would create a great talking point. It certainly would. That would be a great way to open a door to present the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, to your Jewish friend. That same principle for any person who doesn't know Christ. Well, it's been a joy to be able to talk with you again, Steve, and we'll talk again come next Jewish holiday. Thanks, Jimmy. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, I've got David James. We'll discuss abortion. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Remember, I asked you for 90 minutes. We have 30 minutes left. We're going to have a conversation with David James in a moment. We'll be talking about the issue of abortion. You do not want to miss that in light of what did already take place this week. want to have you answer the poll question. It's on the home page of my website, prophecytoday.com. It's on the left-hand column. If you'll scroll down, you'll find it right there. Here's the question. Jews around the world this week will celebrate the Jewish Holy Day of Purim, which is recorded in the biblical book of Esther. Interestingly, the name of God is not mentioned in Esther, but his presence is very evident. With our world today in conflict, both in the Middle East and even in the halls of Congress, and with the spread of the coronavirus, all of this happening now, do you believe, though not many are mentioning God's name, that our God, the biblical God, the God of the Bible, is still in charge? That's the poll question. Love for you to go to my website and look up the poll question there on the left-hand column of the home page and respond to it. Well, let me say right now, David James is supposed to join me. Let me say a couple of words. Dave's mom is in the hospital, and they do not know quite what is wrong, so David is with her. What we are going to do, we'll do a rerun of one of our previous conversations. Last May, we had a conversation on the abortion issue and the new state laws that would ban abortion. 
In light of the Senate Minority Leader's statement, Senator Chuck Schumer, he attacked two justices of the Supreme Court, and he made a threat against them of physical harm. We thought that this would be a very good rerun for you to hear. We now bring to these microphones David James. We, David and myself, have a conversation each and every week. We focus on an issue that is confronting the body of Christ, an issue that we must have a biblical understanding of. So this week we're going to discuss Alabama's new abortion bill and the heartbeat bills around the country as well. But David, before we get to our main topic for today, I want you to share an email that you received from a young lady. I read it. It was just a thrilling email. Uh, She stumbled on the website, the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, a couple of days ago, and she sent you an email. Tell us about it. Sure, and I want our listeners to understand that you're a part of this as well because you're one of the founding members of the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, and and this email is just an example of some of the uh, impact that the Lord is allowing us to have. A young lady wrote me this email. I'll just uh, read the email. Growing up, I raised believing that salvation is solely by works. However, when I was 15, after losing my brother, I realized that the theology behind that concept was wrong. Shortly after, I left the church and began to immerse myself in crippling sin. Lately, I've begun to see how destructive my behavior has been. You had no idea what to do. And today, I stumbled upon your website and read through the Eternity page, which is where I have the Gospel. I read through the Eternity page, and as I read, I understood the truth of the Gospel, and that though I have wasted quite a few years of my life, I'm not too far gone. After much thought, I've decided to give my life to Christ and to begin living my life accordingly. Thank you for your ministry and for unknowingly pursuing the lost like me. I look forward to finding out how to grow in my relationship with Christ. And uh, I've written back to her and, and uh, encouraged her to stay in touch and also give her uh, quite a few different suggestions for resources. Wow, that is great. <laughs> that is so thrilling. Praise the Lord. And folks, if you're listening to our conversation today, let this young lady, we don't know her name, I don't anyway, Uh, But lift her up in prayer that God will strengthen her as she starts this new life. I love the little phrase, she stumbled onto God's hand in working that all out. That's, That's really thrilling, David. Well, on Tuesday of this week, the Alabama State Legislature sent the most restrictive abortion bill in the nation to the governor's desk, and she signed it into law on Wednesday. Talk about it. Sure. Well, as you noted, uh, it was Alabama's Republican governor, a lady named Kay Ivey, and she did sign into law the nation's strictest abortion ban to date, and it was passed by the Republican-led Senate 25 to 6, so that's a very strong passage by the Senate. This new law follows on the heels of a heartbeat bill that was passed in Georgia just last week, and that law prohibits abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around six weeks into a pregnancy. Now, Alabama's new law makes it a felony to perform an abortion in nearly all cases, and the governor did acknowledge that the law was crafted specifically to give the Supreme Court's conservative majority a chance to criminalize abortion nationwide, but of course there's no guarantee it will make it that far. Uh, The law will go into effect in six months unless it's blocked by legal challenges, which it almost certainly will be, and it, it could be tied up in the courts for years. And the American Civil Liberties Union and Planned Parenthood 
Parenthood have already announced plans to file lawsuits against it, arguing that it's unconstitutional. Well, David, uh, let's take a moment and dig into this a bit more. Is this a heartbeat bill or something more? For example, most abortion bills have exemptions for rape and incest. What exemptions are there in this Alabama bill? Well, there are several things. First of all, Alabama's bill is more restrictive than a heartbeat bill. The current laws in effect in both Georgia and Alabama outlaw abortion after 20 weeks, and that's before these recent bills were introduced. And as I mentioned, heartbeat bills generally take that time frame down to six weeks, but Alabama's new law would make it illegal to perform abortions at any stage in the pregnancy with only three explicit exceptions, and these exceptions do not include cases of rape or incest. What they do include are uh, if the baby has some type of lethal anomaly, meaning that it will definitely die, or if there's a serious health risk to the mother, or in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, and that's when a baby is in a fallopian tube rather than the uterus, which makes it impossible for the baby to live to a point of viability, and that can be fatal to the mother as well. And also it's more strict with regard to penalties for doctors who perform abortions. For example, the Georgia bill provides for not less than one or more than 10 years in prison, but the Alabama bill makes it a felony punishable from 10 to 99 years, Mm. or even life in prison for those doctors involved in performing abortions. So even though this would, in effect, make abortion essentially a murder crime, uh, women seeking abortions under this law would not face that charge. It's strictly for the abortion providers. Well, uh, I want you to give us a report. You must have been watching this very closely. Talk to us about the mainstream media and those on the left who are responding to the passage of this bill. Well, I would say probably the best way to describe it is that their heads are exploding. Mm -hmm. The stronger reaction is coming out of Hollywood and the Democrat Party, though. Among those who have weighed in out of Hollywood are Chelsea Handler, Barbara Streisand, Alyssa Milano, Stephen Colbert, and and many others. John Legend, who is a musician, well-known musician, said these state houses are waging all-out war on women. Uh, Jane Lynch, who is actually a lesbian, said the goal is to control women. Lady Gaga said it's an outrage to ban abortion in Alabama, period. This is really turning into quite a cultural battle in the ongoing cultural wars. Yes, it looks like the war is on. Well, David, a number of abortion bills have been passed this year in other states as well, and it seems that this movement at the state level, by the way, may be gaining enough momentum to challenge Roe versus Wade there at the Supreme Court. I think that's right. According to some reports, as many as 30 different abortion laws have been passed by current state legislatures. Now, not all of those are uh, heartbeat bills, but at least 15 states have either passed or proposed heartbeat bills under their their current legislatures. For example, in March, Mississippi passed a heartbeat bill, and as I mentioned, Georgia passed a heartbeat bill last week. In April, uh, Indiana placed a near-total ban on the most common type of second-trimester abortion uh, in our state, and days later, Ohio passed a bill banning abortion in the very early weeks of pregnancy, and this was a heartbeat bill. Uh, Then uh, on Wednesday of this week, uh, a committee of the Louisiana House in Baton Rouge 
uh, advanced a fetal heartbeat bill as abortion rights activists were actually demonstrating outside the Senate chamber. And then early Thursday, just a couple of days ago, uh, the Missouri Senate passed a fetal heartbeat bill that includes an exception for medical emergencies, but does not include an exception for pregnancies caused by rape or incest. So over time, the courts have actually become more sympathetic, and a broad swath of the country's middle and south now has minimal access to the procedure. For example, six states have only one abortion clinic left in them. That would be Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, and West Virginia. So this is spreading. And I would say this, too. This is rapidly becoming a state's rights issue related to personhood. And if we remember our history, uh, this exact issue except related to blacks uh, is what precipitated the civil war in the 1860s so this is very important for the future of our country i would say yes and the body of christ needs to understand what we're talking about here i know one of the arguments used by the pro-abortion camp is that a woman has a right concerning what happens to her own body however scientifically this isn't just about a woman's body it's about the life of another human being as well. That's exactly right. The baby has a completely unique genetic code that's distinct from the genetic code, the DNA of both its father and its mother. It's a unique person, uh, and only one person, unless it's a twin or a triplet or something like that, no other human being will ever have that identical genetic code. And being dependent on the mother and being part of the mother's body are two different things. A nursing baby has a dependent relationship with the mother, but uh, that baby is not a part of her body. And those with physical and mental disabilities are completely dependent upon others for survival, and, and the elderly as well. So what are we going to do with them? And I think this is something that we need to watch. And if the baby is part of the mother's body, then does that mean she has more than one heart, more than one brain, or additional organs, or additional hands and feet. And then what if the baby is a boy? Does that mean that she is both male and female until delivery? So it kind of gets absurd. And I would also say this, it's actually medical science that's going to destroy this argument, because on the one side, there is in vitro fertilization with conception occurring outside the womb, and they're able to remain viable for longer before they implant. And on the other side, medical advances are making viability outside the womb earlier and earlier. So I think ultimately there's coming the time when there's going to be a convergence so that a baby will be able to develop in a completely artificial environment. And if that happens, this uh, idea that it's a part of the woman's body is completely gone. You know, those are some great arguments, David. Boy, that's outstanding. If you're listening to this interview right now, you may want to go back and re-listen to it because you need to write down what David had to say in response to my question. Well, one more, David. When we covered the topic of abortion earlier this year, I remember that you discussed what you believe to be one of the strongest biblical arguments against abortion and for the idea that life does begin at conception. Well, for those who claim to be Christians, abortion should be a non-starter because it is clear from the incarnation of Jesus Christ that life must begin at conception. And except for the most ultra-liberal uh, Christians, those who 
claim to be uh, Christians, we believe that the Bible teaches God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So the question then is, when did God take on human flesh? And the only reasonable answer, the only logical answer, the only biblical answer can be that it happened at conception. It wasn't at birth, it wasn't at 20 weeks, it wasn't even when he began to have a heartbeat. And when Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth referred to Mary as the mother of my Lord, while she, while Jesus was still in Mary's womb. So what if Mary's attitude had been the same as that of some politicians and other pro-abortion activists who claim to be Christians, like Nancy Pelosi, for example? So that, uh, as our dear departed friend Stan Toussaint would say, uh, that bird won't fly, that dog won't hunt. That is right, and love that quote from Stan Toussaint. This, David, was a very serious issue that needs to be discussed by the body of Christ. And thanks for giving us the information you have today. And again, folks, you may want to re-listen to the conversation. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, where we've archived this conversation with David James and myself. Hey, David, thanks a lot for the research, buddy. We'll talk again next week with another issue. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Great to be with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll open the Bible. We'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Hey, everyone. This is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, my broadcast partners across the world, Ken Timmerman in Spain, Winky Madad in Israel, plus those here in the United States, we came together 
to cover a world and looking at the current events in that world in light of biblical prophecy. If you had to miss any of these conversations, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Then go to Prophecy Today Radio Network, PTRN, to hear what these men had to say. Some very important information, insight into current events that helps us to see very clearly how all of these events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Again, prophecytoday.com. PTRN is where you'll find all of these conversations archived for you to listen at your convenience. And do me a favor, please send the link to your friends. They need to hear about what these broadcast partners had to say. Well, I want to take a moment right now to rehearse the details behind the reports from our broadcast partners and the events they were covering And then I want us to look at it from a prophetic perspective. Ken Timmerman, he was in Spain when we had our conversation talking about the conflict between Russia and Turkey going on in Syria. And by the way, that's just not beginning this week. It's been going on a couple of weeks. What happened was that Russian President Vladimir Putin called Turkey's president, Tayyip Erdogan, said, we need a meeting. It was a very tense meeting in Moscow. And actually, Vladimir Putin dressed down Tayyip Erdogan, telling him, you don't put your people among the terrorists, we won't be killing your people. Well, this was a very interesting conversation in light of the fact that Tayyip Erdogan has a desire to be the pan-Islamic leader of the world, Vladimir Putin helped him to save some face. However, he still has that goal in mind. What's also interesting, that Russia and Turkey will not be at conflict. They, according to the prophetic word of God, Ezekiel 38 and Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, Russia and Turkey, along with Syria, will not be in conflict, but they will form a coalition to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. David Dolan gave us his Middle East news update. Always important to hear what David has to say. We talked about a lot of things, the elections, also Purim coming up. We'll deal with those when we talk with Winky Madad on the elections and Steve Herzig on Purim. But David then brought to our attention that the peace treaty between Jordan and Israel is in danger of coming apart. Now, this peace treaty, signed in October of 1994, is one of three peace treaties that have been put together. They're on the table. They've never been normalized, and actually, they are not working. These peace treaties, though, will be a part of a prophetic scenario that is foretold in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 27. That verse says, And he, which is the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant, that covenant would be the peace treaty, and he would do that for a seven-year period of time. couple of thoughts there. The Antichrist is the one who's going to come on the scene, take these three peace treaties, one between Israel and Egypt, another between Israel and the Palestinians, and the last one, that treaty that is in danger between Israel and Jordan 
when he confirms, not signs, when he confirms that peace treaty, that starts the clock ticking on the seven-year tribulation period. And once the tribulation begins, in the first six months, the alignment of nations will take place. Psalm 83, Ezekiel chapter 38, that alignment will try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. And at the end of that battle, it's only going to be a six-month battle, the Gog-Magog war will just be over in six months as the Lord destroys the Islamic world. And then the Antichrist tells the Jewish people, Put up your temple. That's found there in Daniel 11, verse 45. Winky Madad talked to us about the third elections in Israel. I'll tell you what, folks, the results not looking good for a coalition government. That may well mean that we're going to need a fourth election. Well, God's institution of human government is key in the world He put human government in place to direct each of the nations to do what he wanted them to do for the end-time scenario. He leads this world with political leaders making political decisions. That's over there in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17. Israel needs a leader at this time in history. John Rood gave us his report. He said, Turkey is ready to send one million migrants into the European Union. This is blackmail from Turkey to the European Union because they will not work with him against the Syrian people. And Turkey is Ezekiel 38. The European Union will be the revived Roman Empire. That's Daniel chapter 7. Steve Herzig, he's the National Director of Friends of Israel, he gave us the story of Purim. It's found in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Unique book. It does not mention God. However, God is very evident in the entire story. Let me suggest at the time of Purim, which is next week, it is a special time to read the book of Esther. By the way, without Esther, there would have been no Jesus. And then I had a rerun of one of the conversations with David James. Pray for Dave's mother. She's in the hospital. They don't know quite what is wrong. But I'm hoping you had the opportunity to hear our discussion on the abortion issue in light of what the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer had to say. He made a threat against two of the justices on the Supreme Court. Again, prophecytoday.com. PTRN is where you'll find all of these conversations archived for you to listen at your convenience. You know, in the context of all of these issues, they all fit into the prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible. And I must hasten to remind you that the next event is the rapture of the church. No prophecy to be fulfilled before the rapture. And having said that, because it can happen at any moment, I would suggest we keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 